When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply first person to use that term was Pete Townsend in the 60s when he was talking about the Who's latest single pictures of Lily. I used to wake up in the morning I'd always feel so bad I got so sick and I was sleepless nights I went and told my dad So uh, that's where it originated, and then somebody picked it up, and uh, you know, 12 or 15 years later, to describe uh, bands like The Knack and uh, retroactively, uh, I guess, Badfinger and The Raspberries and so on. I think power pop is a pretty narrow term, mm-hmm. a narrow uh, category, you know. And what I do is uh, a lot more than that, and always has been. But uh, but I can see how people would want to, you know, put you in that that pigeonhole as an identifying mark, you know, so. What do you think of that term, power pop? I, I don't like it personally. Um, I believe it was invented by, I believe it was coined by Pete Townsend uh, around about 1965 or 6, around the time of, I don't know, Pictures of Lily or something like that. And he he termed this power pop. And I suppose it went with that whole image of him windmilling his arm, you know, and smashing his guitar and all that um, brilliant stuff The Who did. Uh, and then it was kind of picked up, wasn't it, by somebody, uh, one of those sort of magazines like Trouser Press or one of those magazines started, maybe it wasn't Trouser it Press. It was Bot Magazine, actually, and Greg Shaw. Oh, yeah. Greg Shaw, that's the guy I was trying to think of his name. Yeah. Greg Shaw, uh, he, he power pop. I, I didn't like it because um, it's kind of like an apology. It's it's like, you know, oh, I see, before this, pop lacked power, you know. So if it's not power pop, what is it? Is it weak pop? You know, is it <laughs> right. like, 
is this ridiculous phrase, really. But the thing about it is it communicates, doesn't it? It's a signal that communicates to people broadly what to expect. It's like if jazz wasn't called jazz, if it was called one day it was called, I don't know, Southern double bass music and the next day it was called razzmatazz or something, there would be, you know, it needs a, everything needs a handle to grow an audience. So I guess the term power pop did help to grow this, you know, considerable groundswell of fandom that seems to be out there for music of that era and still quite a lot of very devoted followers of it, which I'm very thankful for. Um, but I don't particularly personally like it <laughs> as, a, as a phrase, but it does a job, doesn't it? That's the thing. Thank you very much. Uh, we would like to sing a song now, which was a record for us, and it was our first hit in England. And this is... In England, way back in England. And uh, this song was released in America. It didn't do anything, but it was released later again. And, uh, well, it's doing something, you know. So, this, yeah, it is. So, so we'd like to play for you now a song called Please Please Me. a broad term uh to me you know early beatles stuff is power pop the um you know please please me to me one of the great power pop songs but then it goes all the way on through time up to uh, the present i mean to me power pop encompasses everything from the beatles to cheap trick to you know the, the raspberries to abba i mean there's there's so many you know, different parts of power pop. Um, I think one of the main things to me is obviously the vocals. I, when, when the term power pop encompasses a very wide spectrum. Oh boy with Buddy Holland and his crickets. My Lord, all of my kisses, you don't know what you've been. I'm missing, oh boy, when you're with me, oh boy. I thought my world could say that you were a bit for me. All of my life, I've been waiting, and I there be no hesitating, oh boy, when you're with me, oh boy. I thought my world could say that you were a bit. For me, 
birds appear and the shadows are falling. You can hear my heart to call in a little bit of love. It makes everything right. I'm gonna see my baby tonight. All of my love, all of my kissing. You don't know what you've been missing, no boy. When you're with me, oh boy. So, on the very first episode of Rock and or Roll, back in 2013, I presented an overview of Power Pop using a 1978 issue of Bomp Magazine as a guide. With this next series of episodes, I plan on delving a bit deeper into the development of the genre, and we will learn about some of my favorite Power Pop records. Along the way, we will hear many interviews that I have conducted with the guys who made those records. There's no denying that Buddy Holly was inspired by Elvis Presley. Buddy was playing bluegrass music in Texas until he heard Elvis. There was clearly something different in Elvis's amalgamation of rhythm and blues and what was called at the time hillbilly music. Elvis hastened the tempo, up the energy, brightened the melodies. Buddy Holly absorbed these influences, but unlike Elvis, Buddy wanted to write his own songs, not just put his own stamp on other people's songs. Buddy Holly opened for Elvis three times in 1955, and he played on the same bill with Bill Haley and his Comets that same year. Buddy realized that he had found his calling, and he formed a band called the Crickets. The Crickets became the template for the Beatles, right down to inspiring the name. The Crickets released an album in 1957. The first song, Oh Boy, was written by another songwriter from Lubbock, Sonny West. Sonny also wrote Rave On. I believe we can draw a direct line between those two songs and what came to be called power pop in the late 70s. The Crickets were making revolutionary music at the time. Their first album also included two classics written by Buddy Holly himself, Not Fade Away and That'll Be The Day. Now I'm going to have those drums left right there because now coming out here, four citizens of the sovereign state of Texas. And they tell me that we'll behave up here in the north. Over Christmas, Texas is going to permit us to come back in the Union. Is that right, fellas? Here from Lubbock, Texas, they're crickets with one of their hit records. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye, and that'll be the day when you make me cry, you say you're going to leave. You know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day when I die. Well, you give me all your loving and your turtle doving, all your hugs and kisses and your these are special songs, distinct in their simplicity. The impact is direct and visceral. Rock and roll. Power pop. Another songwriter from West Texas, Bobby Fuller, had a hit single with a song written by the Crickets guitar player, Sonny Curtis, called I Fought the Law. But Bobby Fuller also wrote his own songs. Some of them are brilliant early examples of power pop, like Another Sad and Lonely Night. Another sad- 
then came the Beatles, who revolutionized that song structure pioneered by the likes of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Bobby Fuller. Short, immediate, contagious, addictive. Come on, let's go. Beatles songs were saturated with melody, injected with adrenaline, straight to the bloodstream, or sometimes a pretty hypnotic lament. Either way, you're almost forced to sing along. The Beatles were a band, the sum of its parts, without a leader out front like Buddy Holly. The Beatles were four distinct personalities, unique and individual, but when combined, a creative force unto themselves. Beatlemania was more than a phenomenon. Everything changed, forever. Bands, bands, thousands of bands, millions of bands. Rock and roll became ubiquitous, all-encompassing. And out of the Beatles came the British Invasion. Bands like the Kinks and the Who. I don't mind the guys dancing with my girl. British invasion that came in the wake of the Beatles gave us bands like The Searchers, The Dave Clark Five, The Hollies. Badfinger were the first band signed to the Beatles record label, Apple. Badfinger built upon the Beatles' foundation. They became a sort of bridge to the 70s, in my opinion, for a Beatles brand of creative melodicism. Badfinger included an undeniable genius, Pete Ham. Many of his songs transcend any era or genre. Badfinger were extremely influential on the musicians that would popularize power pop beginning in the late 70s. Badfinger were the band's band, 
never hugely famous, but exceedingly admired by their peers, fellow musicians and songwriters. Now let's hear some of an interview I conducted with Bob Jackson, who joined Badfinger in 1974, originally replacing Pete Ham, who then rejoined the band. Jackson was a member of the group for the recording of their final album, Head First, which went unreleased at the time, but it's a great record. One, two, three, four. Need your loving, need your loving, need your loving, it's aware of Badfinger? When was I first aware? Well, it would have been, I guess, at the time of the hits, you know, yeah. uh, come and get it no matter what and all that sort of thing. I was a musician at the time, I was a playing, you know, gigging musician at the time, and I was always very impressed with it. And I was just amazed years later when I came back from, um, I was in a different band and I came back from this tour from the, in the States, came back and I and I'd left the band also. I didn't have anything to do. And I got a telegram saying, it didn't say Badfinger, by the way. It just said, you know, I we hear you're free. Would you like to audition? Come to Denmark Street, famous street in London, you know, Music Street, you know, to play, to have an audition. And I went down not really knowing much about what it was all about. So I was amazed. I was delighted and amazed to find that it was Badfinger or who had, you know, I had a great respect for anyway. Wow, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And that was because Pete was out of the band for a short time? Yes, when I originally went down for the audition, um, I noticed that there were only three guys, and I instantly thought, wait a minute, this this is weird. So it was put to me quite early on that Pete had left, and they needed someone else who could write and add harmonies and stuff. And, of course, I think the, the, the choice of a keyboard player, I suppose, was, you know, for them was a sensible one at the time. You know, keyboard player could bring 
bring to reality, you know, on stage, all the keyboard parts that were always missing from, you know, that had been on the records. Right. So, yeah, it was, I, I replaced Pete Ham essentially for about a week or 10 days or two weeks or whatever it was until one day Pete turned up at the rehearsal room. There was obviously a bit of an atmosphere because he'd left the band, but nevertheless, he listened and he said he thought it sounded great and, and they kind of huddled in a corner or went out to the pub or whatever it was. I can't remember now. But um, they left me. I was just sitting in the rehearsal room. But anyway, they obviously had a bit of a conflab about it. And um, they, they must have decided, look, let's give it a go as a five-piece, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's, that's about it, yeah. And so that was after Wish You Were Here had come out? It was, yeah. yeah. In fact, Brian... Um, the tour that we then did, we, we did a British tour and we were basically playing, you know, a lot of stuff to promote that album. And you might be surprised to find, or I don't know, maybe you're not, but um, you might be surprised that we didn't play a single hit on that tour. Wow. Did you play Dennis? Oh, uh, we you... didn't on that tour, oh. no. No, not on that particular tour. That song is uh, incredible. But we, but, but we played—I can't remember exactly the set list, but yeah. but we certainly played um, set several others. You know, I think we did "Timeless," and that, which was an older track, of course. But yeah, not a hit though. I mean, that was strange to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. No matter what. No day after day. No. Yeah. Not. No. Not. Not anything. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear you talk about Pete Ham. I'm I'm kind of obsessed with him. I think he was an absolute genius, like one of those people who must have been able to just write an amazing song in five minutes. It seems like, you know, it seems like uh, it could have just poured out of him. I mean, they tell the story of how Wish You Were Here, they had to do really fast. And then head first, you had to do really fast too, right? Like you weren't ready to make That's a record. Wrong. And yet That's he right. comes in to, with these songs, had, Lay Me yeah, we Down. Yeah, we get and, it together very, very quickly. Yeah. And yet Pete Ham has amazing songs, I Wish You Were Here and on Head First, that are just uh, unbelievable. So I wonder if you could talk about Pete as a person and as a musician, you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, Pete was, you know, there's no doubt that he was a super talented guy, you know, a master of his instrument, great vocalist, and of course probably above all that, a fantastic songwriter. And yeah, he did have that ability to, to kind of knock a song together quite quickly. I think he knew the craft, of, well, he did, he did know the craft of songwriting and didn't just rely on inspiration. He knew how to craft something once he got a direction for a song. Yeah, so he, he, was, he was masterful like that. But, you know, Personally, uh, you might imagine guys in a band. I mean, I didn't look at him as a kind of, you know, a genius figure. Right. He just—he was just a great guy, a really great guy. Very sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Non-promotional, slightly shy, really. I mean, he could have a laugh and everything, you know, of course. Yeah, so Pete really was a lovely guy. Uh, um, and I'm not just saying it but he was one of the nicest guys i've ever met in my life you know what i mean he was generous of spirit i mean when i joined they all um just sort of just treated me as equal 
had an equal say in everything. And I thought that was an amazing thing, you know, and Pete was very uh, encouraging to me. I, I went I went and sort of lived at his house actually for about, well, stopped at his house for about a, a week. Yeah, and got quite close with him. So, yeah, he was, you know, hard to fault really as a person, perhaps a little bit stubborn at times about certain things, but... Uh, but no, a lo lovely, you know, good friend, lovely, lovely guy. Well, that's a testament to the kind of person he was, that he was so kind to you just because, you know, you were the guy that was replacing him. And so, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be surprising to hear that he was, that he was resentful of you or something like that. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. would kind of be a common story you would probably almost expect <laughs> of the guy comes yeah. back and he's like, look at this guy thought he was going to replace me, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. But but as I said, he was so giving. Pete, Pete was in spirit, you know that he he just treated you know he treated me like he'd known me for the last twenty years, sort of thing. And I really warmed to him. And such a loss, you know. I mean, uh, you know, you you can tell by his writing that it was kind of limitless, and there was so much more. He and we could have done um so it really was you know a bit bit of a tragedy really oh very much yeah there's even on those Ryko disc cds that have come out of his like home recordings there's just brilliant stuff on there yeah so, yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah he had a lot 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 of you know that's sort of, well you can tell by the amount the amount of there's two two albums worth and i think there's still more right um he he just had a lot of those songs in his back pocket, you know, that he perhaps wouldn't have, you know, pushed with with Badfinger, but you know what I mean. But he but, but yeah, he just he just had loads of it, you know, loads of them. So uh, yeah, it was very sad that he just got so. Well, we all got so depressed about the business situation that he couldn't see a way forward, and um, and because of his sensitive nature. He he wasn't, you know, he, I don't know, really. He didn't have the fight in him to think, I'm not having this, you know, I'm going to do something about this. So he, he kind of crumbled. It's terrible. But that's, you know, that's depression, isn't it? Yeah, he was probably prone to that already. I mean, I see the the dynamic of they had everything going for them. You know, they had such amazing opportunities and to see it all just squandered because of, you know, this horrible thief that <laughs> was managing them. Yeah. yeah. It. Um... Well, you, you know, he, he was told and, and believed and, be, you know, before his death, he, he rang up the office in uh, America, the management office, and he was told, not by Polly directly, but he was told that there really was no money, you know, to, to look forward to then we went to um we went around various managements in london uh, the four of us and we were trying to get a deal and they were all really interested but they they all kind of said well you get out of that problem and um yeah yeah we'll come back you know when 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 you've got out of it but of course that was so i think pete found himself in a no way forward 
situation and nothing to look forward to. Right. And also, you know, another side pressure was that, you know, he he only just bought his first place. He'd been living in a bedsit for years during all those hits on very little money. And he was just buying a place and his girlfriend was just having a baby, you know, due to have a baby. And can you imagine, can you put yourself in his head, you know? Yeah. No, no way out, you know, no way forward. Terrible. I could definitely imagine what he was going through and where the despair came from. You could definitely understand. Awful. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of the saddest stories. It's really, and it's so, um, it's so infuriating, you know, too. <laughs> oh, tell, tell me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Tell me. Do you know, even now, all these year, decades later, this goes on, you know, there's this, the bad finger injustices, which still go on, actually. I don't want to go too deep into it, but the whole thing, it's never left me, you know. It comes up every day, more or less every day in my house. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, at that time, you couldn't see a way forward. You're right. I mean, it's it's got to be one of the most tragic, you know, saddest cases around such a a talented guy, a talented band, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to kind of convey, you know, the upset of it, really. Does Stan Polly have kids or something that are still getting money from Badfinger? Um, I'm not absolutely sure about that. He does have kids, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. But um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. After the big court case. Yeah. Um, yeah. After Pete's death. After Pete's death. Just the way you said, it still of, comes up. You was... might imagine we kind of severed all. Yeah. No one, including the estates or myself or anyone, just no one wanted to get go anywhere near Polly. Yeah. You know, even to even just to research him. So I, I, I don't have a straight answer to that. So the 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 way I understand it is, wish you were here, was done very quickly, because the label asked for another album or something, <clears throat> something like that. And then the, it's the same story with Head First, right? Like. The band wasn't necessarily ready to make a record, but the label wanted you to make an album. Is that how it happened? Well, that's kind of only partially true. Uh, the The real push was from our management, Polly, you mm. know, Badfinger Incorporated. It was him who was pushing the agenda because he knew that every time an album was handed in, he'd get a big fat advance. Right. So it wasn't really the record company. In in fact, to be really candid with you, Warners were getting a little bit tired because the band had had a couple of albums out on Warners, no hits, and blah, blah, blah. So they were getting to that point of like, we're paying out a lot of money here and we're not getting any big successes out of it. So it was it was our manager who was pushing for that timeline, you know, that, that you know, Go on, get in that studio, you know, do anything, but just just do something because, you know, that will bring the money in. And, and of course, bring the money in to him. It never came out. Yeah. It was just paid into the corporation which he controlled. Yeah, well, there was already the issue with they pulled Wish You Were Here from the shelves 
because the money had disappeared right from the advance and uh, yes i think that's right I, I thought they did it after head foot head first um you know, had already been recorded, but you might be right. It might have been just before, oh, right. just before the recording of Head First. But yes, it was about money in an, in an escrow account, a goodwill account set up by the record company between that and the, you know, and the management. And yeah, I think, I think what happened, in fact, I'm fairly sure what happened is that uh, Polly's smelling this uh, hint you know, of like, mm, you know, Warners aren't so interested anymore. They're getting a bit, bit fidgety. Um, he just took money, took the money while it was there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 So, so he was the one who directed all of that. Yeah. And and we were just like the, you know, <laughs> we were the underlings. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds crazy, but. You know, get in there and do that job in, you know, in next to no time. Okay, you know, it was mad, really. Mind you, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that we did it. Of course, fantastic experience, and I think we produced some good work. You know, but, but yeah, in terms of time scale, it was, uh, you, you were on the clock, kind of thing. You know, you had to get it done. No, I really like Head First, and I think. You could, the the direction the band was going in with "Wish You Were Here" and "Head First was a great direction. Like it seems like there were great things to come, if they had yeah. just been able to keep doing what they were doing and progressing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the songs, not just the songs, but but the arrangements too were getting more. Yeah. That little bit more sophisticated. So yeah, I, you know, I I believed that. I mean, I loved that album, uh, Wish You Were Here as well. I, you know, before I joined, I, I, I heard that and it was fantastic. I, I, I felt we were on, well, we all felt we were on the right track forward. And it was really, as I say, it was really the manager just panicking and pulling the money from the account. That was like the house of cards. You know, once he did that, the whole thing fell down. Yeah, a song like Keep Believing that Pete pulls out for for Head First is as good as anything else he wrote, I think. It's it's so brilliant. And oh, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if he could have just kept going and kept making records like that, songs like that, you know, yeah. the like No One Knows and Dennis from Wish You Were Here are just, I mean, he was doing his best work. And, you know... Yeah, he he was really, yeah. 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 Yes, he progressed as a writer over the many years, you know. Yeah, and, and, and I think when we, you know, doing Head First, uh, you know, all the harmony thing fell into place. You know, we, we, we didn't have to really work too much at that. We slotted in pretty quick. Or I slotted in pretty quick to what they were already doing. Yeah. So, like... yeah, as you, as you say, if only you could have, you know, yeah. held on. Yeah, a song like Past Fast, I think you wrote that with Tom, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's a great song, and that's definitely kind of going in a more, like you're saying, bigger arrangements kind of direction, more, like more interesting arrangement, yeah. I guess. And 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 sort of, uh, you know, a little heavy without yeah. being 
full-blown heavy but it was heavier you know it had a it had a bit of grit you know I, I think that's what what was happening with the band when when we rehearsed and played there was that bit more grit there in the songwriting I, I'm talking about as well as the playing but yeah well I, thank you for that I'm pleased you enjoyed that Yeah, well, and Turn Around is probably the heaviest song on there. You wrote that, right? And that's that's a... Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. you're saying, that's a heavier... But I like that direction for the band. I like that, uh, mixing that in there. It's a very yeah. cool record. It's too bad it didn't come out at the time. Yes, it was. And, and the fight to get it out took years, as you, as you know. I mean, yeah. it did surface, ultimately. Uh, I had to lead... You know, I got all the business end of that together, um, and it was very complex to negotiate that, trying to make too much of it. But yeah, I mean, all those years, it it just sat there. Is the cover with the lion? Is that what it would have been if it came out on Warner Brothers? Uh, it, it would it would have had a lion on the cover, mm -hmm. but it might not have been that lion. Right. Um, there was plans. Tommy and I had talked about it a lot. And it was this idea of putting your head in the lion's mouth, you know. So it was always going to be a lion, but I, I couldn't trace the original, you know, whatever was done. I don't, I'm not sure. I think there was, I think there was a sort of thing done, but um, I didn't really, I didn't have access to it. So I, you know, had, had to improvise as far as the cover goes, but it, it fulfilled the brief, you know, of, uh, head first, you know, into the lion's mouth. <laughs>
So after Pete's death, the band just kind of parted ways. Was there, or did you try to continue at all without him? No, we didn't. Yeah. Um, we were all deeply depressed. Yeah. I mean, like Pete, we we hadn't been, you know, none of us had been getting any money, and none of us could see a way forward. And, and Pete dying. So we were all in a state of shock. So we all kind of agreed. The three of us agreed that um, we couldn't really carry on. It, it just wasn't. We couldn't. And I think the next six months or so was just. Mike went back to Wales, you know. I, I came back to where I live in Coventry. And we all just put our heads down and just try to get over the shock of it and the horror of it. So, no, there was no direction of getting it, you know, let's, never mind, let's get on with it, you know, let's get it back together. No, yeah. definitely not. We just weren't in that frame of mind. But then you linked back up with Tom. Did you form the Dodgers together with Tom, or was it kind of a thing where the band came together and then Tom ended up joining? No, uh, Tom and I kind of, you know, we came in together what what happened was we were put in contact with John John Wilson who had had a band called the Rockets I think that band had split up so you know we'd heard he was a songwriter and singer so we thought well you know it could work and we met I think we first met at Island Records I think we went down to Ireland I think someone in Ireland had kind of put us together you know and we met and kind of talked it over and blah, blah, blah. I think it took a, a week or something to decide. But in there, we thought, well, yeah, let's let's give this a go. So Tom and I came together, yeah, as a as a package sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So I have those singles that you did where, when Tom was still in the band. And yeah. it's great stuff. And it's... it's uh, it's sticking with kind of the Badfinger sound. It's it's pretty similar. Um, yeah, it's got elements. Yeah. Yeah. And and Tommy Tommy, you know, Tommy was a fantastic writer as well. Yeah. I would, would never take anything away from him. He like Pete had had it, you know. But by the time you make the record, uh, Tom's not in the band anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I really wasn't happy about it. Yeah. I was really upset about it, but I was sort of told that he's got to go. This was a management decision, mm. and the management convinced the other guys in the band, but they didn't convince me. But I was left with a terrible choice. That 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 you you know you've done some tracks toward the album. Well, we're either going to pull the album. Or, you know, you either stay with it sort of thing and do our bidding and get rid of Tommy or all that work's lost and there's no way, there's no future in it. That's that's what was presented to us. And I remember Tommy coming, we went to a pub and had the meeting, you know, and I was very quiet. I didn't know what to say. I felt embarrassed. I let the I let the other two do the talking. I was just terribly embarrassed, and Tom was plainly upset about it and walked out. You know, after being told that 
it, that was it. You know, he was gone. And from that moment onwards, I, I continued to feel awful because I hadn't stuck up for him. Well, I had stuck up for him. That's not true. I had stuck up for him. But I was voted down, you know. So it was a very difficult thing. You know, if I'd have really supported Tom, I suppose I should have left, left the band too. Mm. Yeah, but that, yeah, um, that's a pretty difficult a diff It was position. a difficult choice, you know, because yeah. obviously I was getting some money from that. Yeah. Um, so I'd have been walking out of my job. It was difficult. So Tom was was clashing with the management, I guess? Yeah, they didn't. No, yeah, now this doesn't really make sense because who on paper had the most credibility of any of us in that band? Tommy Evans. Yeah. 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 He was from a name band, proven songwriter, you know, without you, you know, all that, all that sort of background of history. But they, he didn't gel in the same way that I didn't gel with the management. I'll, I'll just jump forward here and say that it didn't take too long because, before I too was pushed out by that management because I started speaking up more and blah, blah. So the same thing happened to me. Yeah. It's happened to Tommy earlier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a management decision. They felt Tommy wasn't right. He wasn't kind of uh, the right kind of guy for this band. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. It was ridiculous and still is. I guess it's another example of how unfairly Badfinger have been treated to to think that to the management, even being able to say, you know, hey, we got a guy from Badfinger in this band that wasn't really enough. That wasn't really yeah. enough of a also, selling point. Yeah, also the guys who ran the band were, were, were quite young. There were There was three of them and uh, they were quite young and... I think to them, maybe Badfinger didn't hold that yeah. that aura, you know, that reputation. But they were taking over, trying to push us into a being more like I can remember them saying, you know, well, we'd like something more like Foreigner. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying in, in a very angry meeting, well, if you want Foreigner, why don't you go and get Foreigner? You know, I did the Lennon thing of, you know, you count the percentages and, and we'll do the music. Thanks very much. And that that was the beginning of the end for me. Yeah, it seems like uh, the album is pretty is is different from the singles, kind of a more commercial kind of production. Yeah, I mean, the, the early stuff we did, of course, was with M Muff Winwood, Stevie Winwood's brother. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a a sound that was more the records had more a sound more in keeping with the with that era i think i think the management and the producer they got in was were trying to clean all that up if you if you want yeah. get away from anything too heavy you know keep it clean cut and yeah <laughs> yeah it's weird that the, the dodgers album is, uh, doesn't really it's not quite a power pop album because it's more, it's got more, I guess, just straight pop elements to the production, and the... yeah, def definitely, yeah. definitely, and 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 John, um, you know, who was a talented guy in his own right, he tended to write more of the the sweeter commercial. He took that kind of approach, whereas Tom and I were trying to say say something with the lyrics and. And, and the music 
but yes that the material combined with the direction of the production yeah it it just it was a little bit saccharine you know i mean it's not a bad result but it was it yeah a bit sweet you know you could just tell especially hearing the singles and then hearing the record you can tell that there was everybody wasn't on the same page <laughs> kind of thing no exactly yeah. exactly well we'd gone from the thing with using muff you know we were quite sort of happy in that little team but but that stopped when we left um we left ireland and uh, one of the managers actually of the group used to was working at ireland he, he took us with him and of course that's when he set up an or that they set up another deal for the for us and themselves and they took control you know so yes yeah, see i'm not surprised you can notice a you know a definite delineation between singles and, and the album yeah it was quite marked yeah definitely and it's too bad because you know if the if the record was more like the singles it could have been something great you know, and if Tom was still in the band too, but oh well. Well, of course. <laughs> no, you're right though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If both those things would have carried on, again, I think we uh, we could have achieved great things. You know, but uh, as usual, the dreaded management came into play, <laughs> right. spoiled everything. Right. Tom. Yeah. I mean, I I was raving about Pete Ham, but. Of course, also I'm a I'm a huge fan of Tom Evans. He was also incredibly talented. What was he like as a person? Yeah, uh, different to Pete. Um, lovely guy, very quiet normally, and I, I guess his general persona was like quite withdrawn. You know, he wasn't the greatest one to make conversation or that sort of thing. He was caught up in his own thoughts an awful lot of the time. Um, but, you know, in, in a band context, you know, when we'd been to the pub and had a couple of drinks, I mean, he could be the life and soul. He could go completely the opposite way, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, and be the clown for, for the evening. Yeah, again, a good a good person, like Pete, good person, who just the pressures of, of everything just was getting him down constantly, you know. And, of course, that got worse and worse and worse. And when he, too, thought that maybe he wouldn't get any money because of the disagreements within the group, yeah, he, he, he did the same thing, you know, as Pete. But, again, he, he was, you know, he was a lovely guy. We were great friends. You know, we worked together a lot. Shit, we all shared rooms. We, um, Yeah, it was a big, big loss to me, big loss to me. Yeah, Badfinger might have been the first band that ever had the two competing versions. <laughs> that, yeah, that I know. Great. Yeah, it's like something out of a comic book or something. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that was crazy. We, you know, we went. Me and Tom, and Mike. You know, we we kind of we were asked to do this tour in America. And we did it. We we actually, uh, well, I say we. I think Tommy. Tommy told me he invited Joey to to join, but Joe, you know, rejoin. Because, of course, he'd left all those years earlier after Head First. But, um, but, but Joey wasn't interested, so that was that. So we carried on, and then in no time at all, Joey had his own band up and running. 
Yeah. Yeah, I have that. I have. I've read the book, and so. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you you probably yeah. Yeah, the right. whole story. Um. Yeah. At, yeah, like you messaged me that you were in Milwaukee. That's. I mean, that's just a. I know that there's that television show. There's that local Milwaukee television show. I think that's on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. yeah, what a weird. Toulouse, Toulouse, no neck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was just a character. You know, he was a character. Yeah. I mean, it was so low key. It was ridiculous. But the the new manager we had in Milwaukee, he, he invited us all over with promises of. Uh, <laughs> promises of money and fame and again you know all this sort of thing but when we got there there was nothing he, i think he had two three gigs in the book and they were just like bars and he put us on that tv thing yeah and you can imagine within only a few days tommy and i I mean, Mike just went, got up and went back home because he, when, when I say home, I mean, he, he married, he was with an American girl. And so he, he just went off to Detroit and stopped there. But me and Tom, we, we couldn't go back home. So we started on constant arguments with uh, this guy, this manager. And this lasted, this situation, this standoff lasted for about 16 weeks. <laughs> with no work starving we were we were literally dependent on the kindness of strangers you know we really were it's quite a story isn't it <laughs> yeah it really is it really is i love the song that you wrote for pete is it called i won't forget you yeah yeah that's that's mine yeah yeah that's a, there's a live version of that on youtube i really like that oh good Good. Yeah, it kind of just summed up. Yeah, it just summed up how I felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. I believe in what we have. So you you have, you're keeping the Badfinger name alive now, right? I I am, yeah. Over the last four years, five years maybe, uh, what happened there was that I'd felt very um, disenfranchised by Joey because after Tommy's death, again Mike and Mike and I were there now in control of the band, of course, and we were asked to do another tour in America and we, oh, we, I remember saying to the guy, look, I don't know whether I'm ready for this. We just lost a second guy. I, I don't know. You know, I'm really not sure. 
and where are we going to get players from and you know blah. and this guy said well look you know uh, why don't we why don't you get joey mullen back in and i was really hesitant about it because he'd let the band down at the most important time after not getting on with pete and you know after head first he just each uh, not not after head first sorry after the tour before head first he just left yeah and he, him and pete had their differences so so the idea of getting him back in i had to think a little bit about that but you know we invited him back in and he came back in and we worked together and we did a good show i think but it wasn't long before he, he, he essentially elbowed me and then mike out that was the thanks i got you know so yeah so anyway moving up to, <laughs> i'm backtracking moving up to the current time it had been suggested to me for years that i should do the bad finger again or do, put my version on the on the on the road and i was with this band called the fortunes who i was earning a regular living with so trying to run two bands at the same time wasn't was very difficult you might imagine but in time I talked to the families, I talked to um, Peter, his daughter, and, and Marianne, you know, Tommy's missus, and in the end I thought, well, yeah, you know, I, I really, I feel unfairly dismissed from this band, I never left it, and I've, I've been through all the worst times of it, you know, yeah. Joe had all the good times in a short period, <laughs> right. and I've been through, through this protracted time, just, I never thought about that, but yeah, you, terrible things. You, you, you know? joined the band. Yeah, you joined the band at the worst time. Yeah, yeah. I did. You know, yeah. exactly wrong. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 then after that Milwaukee affair, where the guy sued me and Tom and Mike for a total of five million dollars, yeah, you I nearly, joined. I, I nearly had my house taken away. You joined just in time to experience all of the trauma. <laughs> Exactly. I, you know, I really did get the worst end of the deal. Yeah. So then, after when, if you, if you can put yourself in my shoes, after working through all those years and doing, you know, kind of doing the best, trying to do the right thing, blah blah blah, get Joey in, and then I get pushed out. So I, I did feel, and I do feel, that that was really dishonourable of him. So. Yeah, so I thought I formed a band here after a while. I thought, why not? You know, I'll just continue the legacy. I, I had the backing of all the Badfinger friends and family, except Joey, of course, but everyone else. Um, and everyone else is completely uh, off the page with Joey. You know, they don't communicate. There's a lot of bad feeling there. So, yeah, so I, I felt justified. You know, in in starting starting it up, so yeah, so that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, I totally support it because obviously Pete and Tom can't do it, and um, I support anything that keeps the legacy going because to me it's such an important important legacy, and anything that keeps the memory alive and keeps the the music that those guys made, you know. Uh, yeah exposes uh young people to it new people to it yeah it's uh it's a good yeah thing. i mean the material the material is too good you know to, to just just 
forget uh, yeah. in my mind. Yeah, I so, agree. So, so for me, it really is a mission, you know. You know what I mean? I'm on a kind of campaign. I'm on a... That's how I, uh, how I look at it. it. It's not just about... Well, I'll tell you what. I'll put a bad finger together. I might make a few quid. It, really, that really isn't it. It really isn't. And I've been accused, you know, on the internet of, well, who are you, you know? Why should you do it? Of course, most people don't know the back history. Yeah. Um, and who else is gonna? Who else is gonna do it? Well, of course, of course, Joey was doing it, but I didn't feel comfortable leaving it in his hands, really, yeah. because there was a lot of bitterness between Joe and the other guys and and families. So I didn't feel comfortable just leaving it as though, like you know, well, I've been pushed out. Well. Oh well, I'll have to accept it. No, I didn't. I, I wasn't happy about that. Yeah. So I felt, ju- yeah, I I felt justified. So, so I've, you know, yeah, I own the name over here, and um, and we've done shows, and they've gone really, really well. I mean, it's the material, really. You know, you play that stuff and play it properly, and uh, it moves people. You know. No, it's it's amazing stuff, and it's only a good thing to keep it alive. So. Yeah, I, I well, I, that's my belief. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I think. These, these were all, you know, these were great mates of mine, and yeah, I, I I feel terrible about the whole, you know, angry and sad at the same time about the whole situation that that went down, you know, from Pete Pete's death onwards. It's so tragic too, because I kind of think that Tom probably never would have done what he did if Pete hadn't done it first, you know. Yeah, I'm, I I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. There, yeah. I think I think that that seed of you know Pete's suicide, you know, doing the ultimate thing, it it kind of it suggests, doesn't it, in in someone else's mind, if they're so down and depressed, like, well, that's the thing to you know, that's the ultimate thing to do when I'm I'm so low. You know, yeah, I'm going to do what Pete did. That that's that's all that's left. Yeah. So I, I I agree with you on that point. I think that's that's a valid point. Yeah, it's like people act like people say, I can't believe this band had two guys that committed suicide. Well, that's why. <laughs> that's why it's not a coincidence. Yeah, um, it's more of uh, Tom. just kind of compounded the the tragedy that Pete that Pete's death started, I guess, and. They both basically did it for the same reason. And the last thing I s- he said to me is, I'll see you again. And uh, at five o'clock, his wife gets on the phone to me, screaming, and Peter's dead, you know? So I went there, and she hadn't phoned the police, and I was, I was, that, that's all I know, you know? Well, I'm just the way the story goes you always smile but in your eyes your sorrow shows yes it shows 
Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Garage rock and psychedelic rock had burned bright in the late 60s, but soon fizzled, and with the 70s came slower tempos, longer songs, meandering melodies, artsy-fartsiness. But talented artists like Badfinger and Emmett Rhodes stuck to the Beatles' formula and kept that style of music alive. Big Star, of course, was another band from the early to mid-70s that stands out in retrospect in terms of what was to come. Would you welcome them, please? Big Star. Thank you. The Raspberries were another early 70s band who carried the torch for the British invasion. When I see the wind- 
Todd Rundgren's early band, Naz, were an American take on the British invasion. On his 1972 double album, Something Anything, Rundgren included a supreme early example of power pop, a song called Couldn't I Just Tell You. For a 1978 TV appearance, Rundgren introduced the song as part of, quote, the latest musical trend, power pop. The latest musical trend is called power pop. Flamin' Groovy Cyril Jordan wrote the revolutionary Shake Some Action in 1972, although it wasn't released until 
there's a movie and made in 1958 called None But the Brave. And uh, Tommy Sands says to Clint Walker, I'm ready to take some action, sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you possibly explain what the three different songs were and how you combine them together to, to create Shake Some Action? Well, those other two uh, parts, those other two songs I was working on were different sections of, of chord structures that I added to Shake Some Action. The, uh, none of those songs were finished. And none of those songs got to the point where I was writing lyrics. Um, I kept working on this section, and then I kept working on and uh, the, the section of the other song and I wasn't getting anywhere. And after three months, one day I put all of those sections together, the intro to shake some action, the, uh, part, uh, the verse section, and then the chorus section, you know, we're talking about four or five sections of, of, uh, chord structures. So those other two songs that would have morphed into, into reality, uh, they never, they never were born really, you know? It was like just an idea uh, that got nowhere. And what I what I did was is I took what was left of the idea and added it to shake some action. And it sounds like you really wanted to write like an epic song, like you were really thinking you wanted to write something special, like this was going to be important, this one song. Well, you know, Roy and I, I mean, uh, when we started writing together, yeah, we wanted to make money. Yeah, we wanted to get into the charts. But what we wanted to do more than anything was to turn on uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. You know, we wanted to blow their minds. You know what I mean? If we could, if we could get some uh, uh, nods from those guys on our stuff, we knew we were on the right track. You know, and uh, this this song "Shake Some Action" being the first real song I wrote completely uh, on my own after Roy had left uh, was the, was the beginning of that. So. The effort for that song was was a great effort. I, I you know, I got to show everybody that I, that I, I, I can come up with something great, and I also uh, I've got to get into the charts and I've got to come up with something new. So you know, basically that was the motivator for uh, the way Shake Some Action was was shaped. You tore me down is is a is a bigger attempt at uh, British Invasion pop, I think, than uh, Shake Some Action. You know, uh, You Tore Me Down is a little bit more classic, so it's a little bit more retro. Uh, Shake, on the other hand, is innovative. Uh, we're not going back in time. We're moving forward in time as far as the structure of the chords and stuff, and also the approach of how to play it. How much influence did Dave Edmonds have on how that record ended up sounding? Well, Dave didn't even know that uh, he was assigned to produce us. Uh, I had flown to England, and uh, and uh, Andrew Lauder at uh, United Artists had set up a bunch of interviews, Melody Maker and uh, 
you know, all these newspaper weekly uh, papers that came out. So they asked me, they said, what are you doing here? Well, I, you know, when I got to A&R, the A&R office at UA, I asked Edmonds if, if uh, it would be possible for us to work at Rockfield. And he went, oh, yeah, no problem. And I said, you think we could get Dave Edmonds? And he said, sure. So, you know, I told these guys, yeah, we're going to go to Rockfield and Dave Edmonds is going to produce. Now, this, I don't find this out until 75 when we go back to Cut Shake that Dave, that afternoon in April, in 72, uh, he got a call from the guy who owns Rockville, Kingsley Ward, and Kingsley said, hey, do you know you're supposed to produce this band today, uh, this American band? And he goes, what? So he showed, you know, he showed up. So the whole thing was a fluke. Now, the reason why I picked Dave Edmonds is because in 69, uh, when Roy and I were driving to Lake Tahoe to do a show with the Birds and the group Love, it was Love's last show, we heard I Hear You Knocking on the radio on the way up, and we just, me and him, just freaked out. You know, we actually stopped the car, pulled over, and turned the volume up to listen to it, you know. And then later on, I found out it was cut at Rockfield Studios. And when I heard that, I went, oh, wow, man, maybe Rockfield Studios is like Sun Studios. that It has its own sound, like Gold Star Studios, right? So for me, Rockfield was like the new Sun record. They have their own sound. Let's go to Rockville. We'll, we'll get that sound that, that's on I Hear You Knocking, you know. Wait, well, when you were over there in England, that's when the, the what they call pub rock, when that was really big, right? Were you yeah. Were you playing shows with those bands, or were you playing those same pubs? Yeah, we played a lot of those pubs, and we became friends with uh, Nicky Lowe and Dave Robertson and Jake Riviera. You know, the whole that whole uh, English underground uh, pub scene. I think we did over 220 shows in England that year. We lived there the whole year in 72. So we were playing like all the time. We got signed to the NEMS uh, agency, which was Brian Epstein's agency. And our first gig in England is in front of 250,000 people at the Bickershaw Festival, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was an amazing leap for us uh, to come from the Bay Area having been really rejected by the hippie uh, scene here uh, because we wore velvet coats and we just looked too good on stage. And, they, you know, you know, in those days, you could actually tell that the audience was getting really uppity and we're, we're judging you for all kinds of shit except the art uh, and the music, you know. And so, you know, we went to L.A. Uh, uh, we, we, we decided to go do a tour of the U.S., in 68, we said to ourselves, hey, look, we're either the worst band that ever happened or, or the people in this town are, are, are crazy. And so we toured uh, the U.S., hooked up with uh, Iggy and the Stooges and the Golden Earrings and uh, Love Sculpture, Dave Edmonds' band. And, uh, you know, I didn't even realize in 72 when I was working with Dave that we had met in 68 on the road because he was in love sculpture at that time. You know, those were, those were cloudy days. I mean, we were dropping yeah. a lot of LSD, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, smoked a lot of pot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I tell members, uh, ex members of the band now when I see him and when we meet to not, to not get too pushed out of shape about what happened back then, because we were all so stoned out of our fucking minds. Uh, we really can't be held responsible for, for our actions. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we cut the album in uh, of Teenage Head 
1970 at Christmas. And by the summer of 71, Roy was gone. And I think it was in that summer of 71 when I started working on Shake. Wow. I brought Chris Wilson, right? I brought him into the band right around the end of the summer. And I already had uh, the song arranged and, and finished with two verses. So I gave, I wanted to have a songwriting partner. I always thought the way the Beatles did it was great because you got two guys writing. So you've got some objectivity going on, right? Uh, it's not just all your, your idea totally. So I told Chris, I said, listen, I want, I want you to be my songwriting partner. Uh, Chrissy was a, was a damn good guitar player and he also was pretty damn smart. And besides that, he, he was able to mimic, uh, anybody from Daffy Duck to Little Richard. I mean, you know, Chris is like one of the great mimics of the world, you know? And, uh, so when, you know, when we were writing songs, you know, I'd show them like, uh, let's say I was, I, I was working on I'll Cry Alone, which is on Shake. And Chris knew immediately where I was coming from. He said, this is the Rolling Stones in the mid-60s. So he did his Jagger, you know, uh, to that. You know, it was, he was a great, it was a great tool, his talent for the stuff we were doing. I heard the term power pop after Shakes of Action came out. I went, yeah, that's a, that sounds about right. Uh, I, I think I think at first I kind of went, eh, you know, I don't know about that. But then after a while, uh, you know, somebody at a, at a show in England came up to me after the, after the show. We ended the show with Shakes of Action, and, and the guy was just raving about how powerful, you know, the intro was. And then I began to realize that maybe the term power pop was appropriate. Uh, for that song, you know, I was I was influenced by the Who to make that intro very powerful and to bring a little bit more power into that pretty uh, arena of melodies that uh, the Beatles had created. I mean, there was there was a movement of that that type of music. You know what the Beatles had done to all of us players uh, in the '60s. Uh, the effect had lasted uh, well into the early 70s, because if you listen to the Raspberries, I came back to America. I didn't know about them. I mean, they weren't getting any airplay in England. 
So when I came back at the end of 72 and, and found out about the Raspberries, I began to realize that, that we weren't the only band that ha- were still still basing our influences on on the British invasion and what what the British invasion had done. You know, you, you realize when you're a writer back then, you realize that, you know, by, by having your influences direct you, uh, you try to copy uh, what these guys did and you try to add your own thing to it. And, that, and that's basically the approach, you know. We were all trying to blow each other's minds back then, all, all of us groups, and we were all influencing the hell out of each other, you know what I mean? Without, it, without actually even knowing it. Meanwhile, down in Memphis, bands like Pre and The Scruffs were busy emulating Big Star, a band that was still little known at the time outside of Memphis. Speaking of Big Star, on our next episode, we will explore that band's history via interviews I conducted with drummer Jody Stevens and early fans of Big Star John Tiven, who formed the Memphis band Pre with Tommy Hone in 1975, and Van Duren, who was friendly with the guys in Big Star and hung around Ardent Studios. Pre's 1977 EP and Van Duren's 1978 album, Are You Serious?, are sought-after classics of the power-pop genre. Oh, baby, it's so far behind me But instantly 
I was glancing through a, a rock uh, publication called Zoo World the other day and came across a review of your new album called Radio City. And the guy started off the review by saying, uh, here it is, only January, and we already have the album of the year. You're getting an awful lot of critical acclaim for your, uh, for your new album. It's really good. Yeah, that's uh, nice. I hope it sells. <laughs> We've had critical acclaim before. <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 